Hi, I'm Eva Guaycochea. I am the founder and CEO of Mod, and to me, it's a matter of gumption. Sex sells, and it's big business. I'm Kelly Kovac, founder of Beauty Matter. Sex is a fundamental part of being human, yet it's rife with social stigmas and moral judgments. Thankfully, the norms around sex are evolving, and the sexual wellness conversation is helping to shake its taboo status. Moving beyond a legacy industry dominated by condoms and drugstores and sex toys and seedy strip malls, sexual wellness is evolving from a niche category to a mainstream opportunity, gaining the attention of investors and retailers and giving rise to a new wave of brands capitalizing on this shift. Eva Gokachea, the founder and CEO of Mod, is redefining the narrative through an inclusive approach and engendering better intimacy by pushing boundaries and breaking down barriers. Hi, Eva. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. As a way of setting the foundation for our chat, can you give us a little background on yourself and the impetus for a launching mod? Okay, well, let me keep it short because it could take a really long time to explain. The long and short of it is that I've been in brand building and at startups for many, many years. But in my early career, I was a legislative aide in healthcare. And I was born in New Mexico, which is a state that is far, far down the list on access to sexual health resources. And for me, this was a category that I believed through building a really interesting and inclusive brand, I could change culture and the course of history and the landscape for sexual health. So it is all things that I've been working on brought together. You know, it's interesting because identifying sexual wellness as a white space isn't exactly a new opportunity. There are brands that have been trying to capture that opportunity for well over a decade. But what is it about the market dynamics or the positioning of the brand that enabled Maud to sort of pioneer this legacy category that existed but was rarely discussed? I think the timing was actually everything because you saw, and you know this well better than most people, the idea of wellness and integrative approach to how you think about that was really critical for Maud to even launch and exist because it's this idea that sexual health is just as important as a part of the rest of your personal care in your life. And that means that the approach has to feel that way. So it is all about wellness. It is all about sexual health. It is all about leaving room for intimacy and really your psychological approach and feelings to the category. It all had to come together to create the right timing for Mod to exist. And I think we weren't ready before. Yeah, I also feel like it was sort of this confluence. Maybe it was on a social level or maybe it was generational. I think sort of Gen Z kind of coming into their own, added some fuel to the fire. But kind of around the same time, you had conversations happening around period care. You had conversations happening around fertility and menopause. And all of those things are connected because the connective tissue, I think, for all all of those things during different points in a, well, I'll use women, but in a human's existence is really connected by sexual wellness in a way. Absolutely. And I think that if you don't approach it in that way with a really honest and inclusive mindset about how it fits into every part of your life as an adult, I think then you miss the point. You miss the opportunity to create something that matters. I guess we are finally in a place where the stigma around sexual wellness has been lifted or is lifting. 
And design has played, I think, a significant piece to this narrative. Some people have approached it in trying to demystify the category by being super cute and clever and tongue-in-cheek. And I think there's a place for that, and there's people for that. I think others have approached it by trying to push the envelope even further, which I'm not sure consumers are actually ready for. But the design aesthetic and language choices for Maud strike this really interesting balance between being incredibly intelligent and sophisticated in design, but approachable. So what did the development process look like for the brand? And did you have any non-negotiables going into it? Yeah, I mean, I think the first one was that I was going to advocate for humans. So while I was raising money or developing the brand, I was getting asked to think about a very targeted audience. I continually said, this is about people. I don't actually care what your gender or adult age is. I care that you feel like this is a brand that can enhance your life, make you feel more comfortable. Gender and sex are not the same thing. They are related, but they're not the same thing. So that was always in my mind. And that was the non-negotiable was saying, this is about people. The development process, interestingly enough, in order to be inclusive, we started out with a really bright palette. And then we're like, oh, we're going to have many colors because that's the most inclusive thing to do. And then you realize the operational challenges of trying to create many colors of packaging. So it started to be about creating a palette and design that was universal in terms of thinking through how can this be attractive to every stage of your life? Because to your point, there are very cute brands and they often feel targeted towards young people. And I wanted to say, hey, it really doesn't matter how old you are. Is this something you would use? Or they're also, I think, for sort of sexual wellness or the sex channel, there's always that gifting opportunity, right, around life moments and they kind of fit that. But can you build kind of a brand with longevity around it? Can you build a brand with longevity and can you also create something that is basically products that can be talked about amongst partners? Because if you really look at the market, it's been very gendered. And what that does is then it creates more of a barrier to talking about this with your partner if you come to the table with your very masculine or very girly products. So that was always top of mind was saying this has to be talked about with other people. Aside from the design, I find the choice of language or tone of the brand really interesting and intentional because it's smart and that's not really easy to do while being kind of smart and approachable at the same time. But I have to imagine that that was an intentional choice as well. It was. I always say that sex is the subtext for everything. And I think I mentioned this to you before. You look around and in design and you go into a really nice bar and the lighting and the mood and all of these things are constantly asking us to think about sexiness or intimacy or making you feel a particular way. They're really evocative. And somehow this industry has like completely ignored that. So I was like, how can we evoke the same feeling that is happening in all of these other areas of our lives that essentially asks you to feel something feel smart, feel sexy, feel beautiful, feel lovable. That's what we wanted the language and the design to do. I think the combination of design and language is always sort of powerful when you get it right. Some of the early brands try to demystify the category by being incredibly cerebral. And I was like, you're so smart. You're like kind of taking the sex out of the category. <laughs> like... There's nothing sexy about this language. So kudos to kind of striking that chord because you also sort of tackle education in a way that's grounded in facts, which I think is also important. We often talk about how can you 
show, not tell. So even in language, I mean, we don't want to talk at anyone. We almost walk through our journey in our everyday here as a company, almost saying we are living in a world we want to live in, which isn't true. There's so much work to be done, whether it is in the classroom or it's in the category itself on the shelf, like there's a lot of work to be done. But we're like, imagine that the world looks like mod. And so the acceptance is already there. Speak that way. Ask people to relate to the company the way that we want to relate to them, not try to tell them that this is how they have to think about sex. So it's a really fun, interesting process. Speaking to that D to C in this kind of the last 10 years, community has been kind of one of those talking points you see in everyone's decks. And I also feel like brand audiences and community often get conflated, but they're fundamentally different things. And one is not better than the other, by the way. And you can be both and kind of shift between them. But can you share how you found and connected with the people, because you do believe in community at its core, how did you find those people and nurture them? Well, you know what's interesting is I don't even think that we've, I know this cliche phrase is said all the time, but I don't even think we've scratched the surface of community. What we found early on was The first thing as a brand that we did was we sent out a survey and it kind of spread like wildfire. It was within like a week or two, we had almost 700 responses and they were from 18 to 81. And they essentially said the same thing, which was, I don't identify with this category. Typically, I find it to be outdated or misogynistic. It was all the same thing. And so it presented both challenge and opportunity because on one hand, you're like, oh, well, it feels like this whole cross-section of people feels the same way, but how in the heck do you build community off of that many audiences? So for the past four years of the brand, we've basically said, can we just produce something that is really universally accepted? And then at some point we'll dig in when we have a bigger team, we can dig into how you ultimately build community. Who are the engaged audiences versus who are the people that like mod, but they don't really want to talk about this publicly. So. It's still a work in progress from the perspective of community. And I would say if we were to say we have a community, it's just bound by shared values. But boy, does every customer look different. <laughs> there, is, there is not one profile of customer. That's the biggest, I think, mountain to climb. I honestly think that that is the reality. I think for so long, marketers have honestly been lazy. Like they pigeonholed consumers into kind of these age demographics or generational cohorts. And none of these people operate as a monolith. And, you know, now I think that really savvy brands, when an investor asks, who's your core demographic? Well, Very rarely is it defined by an age range. And if it is, you might say, well, I mean, that's rather limiting, right? Because Gen Z consumers are going to get older, they're going to get married, they're going to have kids. And are they going to act the same or want the same product? And is sort of Generation Alpha going to want a Gen Z brand? Probably not. So I think the way that you're approaching it, that's how you find your audience. They're everywhere and they look differently. But it's hard to reach them as a D2C brand, right? Because you don't have those like ways of pinpointing them. I mean, there's so many inefficiencies right now in acquiring a customer in D2C. Now you add on, they are all of these age groups and they are all genders. It's really hard. And I think ultimately what we can do 
without our heads falling off is essentially say we have to continue to be true to who we are and we have to believe in what we're doing so much that we don't waver and it's very easy to be attracted to shiny things when you're trying to build a brand and you say let's tackle this or let's build this product or let's change our voice but I want to be as steadfast as possible and look if at the end of all of this we come out with no audience well that was the test but what I've seen is that we have so much potential. How have you navigated the challenges of the category when it comes to, I'm going to call it censorship on social media because it sort of is censorship. (laughs) I mean, we witnessed it on LinkedIn, believe it or not. I was shocked. But listen, we're a B2B platform. I had my hair on fire for a moment because I found it so preposterous. But it is kind of the day-to-day existence that you have in this category. So on D2C, like how do you navigate kind of the cost of acquisition is enough for most brands to navigate. But now you also have a category where you can put an ad up and it gets pulled off. So the first thing to know is that there are some products, I mean, if you want to get even more riled up, there are some products that we're able to advertise, including the condom. We have to advertise it as a medical device or as a health device. And the same thing with lubricant, we cannot advertise the vibe. But I have never been angry about that. And I will explain why. I think that there is blanketed language within these platforms that essentially says adult products and services. What kind of forum are you going to need in order to define what is acceptable and what isn't acceptable? And I actually think that brings up an entirely much broader question of I don't want to be a brand that's whitelisted while another brand that is also trying to make change is not because they, maybe their objects are too phallic. I don't know. There's never going to be a fair outcome here until we really define what is sexual health and wellness versus what is adult products and services. So I've kind of tabled that frustration in my mind. You just really kind of focus on what will work rather than trying to push the envelope. Yeah, because I know I say devices, but I say that because I ultimately think we have to start treating these products as tools and necessary so that we can ultimately change this over time. It's not going to be easy and it's not going to be quick. So I get that. And the vibe gets all of its fair share of press. So it's like, okay, great. You be the hero out there. We'll deal with the pain. When I think about how to create more inroads to advertising, it's just through the assortment that we have. So we have bath and body, we have scent, we have ingestibles. In service of trying to build an intimacy brand, you need to have that assortment anyway. And then, oh, guess what? You can advertise. Listen, I think it is important as an entrepreneur to kind of pick your fights because there's so much to do in kind of a day. So I think it makes a lot of sense. But I think it's also really easy to overlook the significant shifts that have occurred to make a brand or a product tip from niche to mainstream. And a lot has happened in this category, even since you launched in 2018. So looking back, what's been the most significant change or evolution in the category that's kind of provided you the traction you need to build a scalable business? I think it has to do with the connection between wellness and sexual health. You and I talked about this briefly, but like, is there a goop effect? Is there ultimately these conversations around the topic that have basically created room for this to be a part of personal care and health? Yes, absolutely. I think Moon Juice's sex dust and goop and her products, like these have all been helpful in saying it's one and the same. Your sexual health is part of your overall health period. And that shift has happened in beauty Separate of sexual health, I think that shift has happened in beauty also, which is 
ingestible beauty and topical beauty and inclusive beauty. And so you're just seeing the same thing happen in sexual health. And I think it was only a matter of time. Has there been a moment kind of since you launched that kind of as a brand was kind of this tipping point that has proven out some of your, I guess, business hypothesis going into this? I think one was getting the customer to tell us what they wanted and it sort of mirrored what we planned on launching. I think two is seeing the, I don't want to call it copycatting, but I think the parroting of what we're doing, seeing other brands launch similar products, I think is not about they just trust us. And so they're going to like also launch it and think it will work. I think it's actually just what's happening out in the world around what consumers expect from the category. So those are the moments in which I would consider tipping points because it's just validation for how we're building the assortment and how we're building the brand. I would say that one of the tipping points is the appetite for beauty retailers, which are really kind of slow on the uptick of this trend, actually. (laughs) One of the biggest challenges with white space, and I think people don't realize this, is that there's very often not a place for the white space opportunity in the current kind of shelf schematic or category schematic for retailers. I don't necessarily think that's the case for sexual wellness. I think it was more of, I'll call it the fear factor. But we have seen retailers, especially during the pandemic, kind of dip their toes in it, some sort of a little further than others. And I know you've launched with some of those retailers. What kind of impact did brick and mortar retail have? I know it's probably still a very small percentage of your business, but. Well, brick and mortar and online retailers, we kind of see as the same. We haven't even expanded too much into brick and mortar. Well, online is very safe for retailers. Once they decide to put it on the shelf, that's a real commitment. I mean, in total, our retail partnerships is about 25% of the business, but like brick and mortar is a much smaller percentage of that. And I would say that there's you're right. We're the guinea pigs. They're making sure that this category is viable in store. But I would also say that the feedback we've received is, unlike beauty, there's not a million brands in the space that can sort of sit together as a unified section. And so I'm finding that while it's been a really good opportunity, it's also still very much about timing because they want to make sure they build it out and capitalize on the opportunity while having the right assortment. And you can very much say, oh, well, we tried one to two brands on the shelf and they didn't work, which is what you've seen in like the credos of the world. So it's an opportunity, but it's just the timing is still. I mean, to date, what's been the biggest challenge? How much time do you have? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there have been many. I think one is obviously fundraising was just really hard. That also has to do with timing and proving out that it's something customers want. So fundraising was hard. I've done it four times. I think it's just beats you down, but also it's very much the reason I could get up because I knew that I so much believed in this. I think also the challenge of timing in the broader retail expansion piece is harsh because you know that it should be there, but it's just logistically speaking, how are the Sephora's of the world going to go build out a section for you, right? So there's that. And then I think third is just the day-to-day of managing who you are and then what it takes to build a company. And that's where gumption comes into play. But There are so many day-to-day concerns of running a business. I have a stack of checks on my desk that I have to deposit via my phone. And I'm like, what era am I? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, sometimes retailers will send you checks and they're literally like $10. There's one retailer, I will not name them, but they process every single order separately. No, I got a check yesterday in the mail and I just rolled my eyes. I was like, oh, really? (laughs) 
It's like one more thing I have to do today. I know. And we're a team of 10. I'm desperately trying to hire, which is its own full-time job. So when you say challenges, there's always challenges. Every single day, there's a challenge. And I'm made for this, but man, is my hair going gray. (laughs) I think one of the narratives that I think it's very, very important to speak transparently about the challenges of launching these not only indie brands, but brands that are defining white space, because there is also this, we're in a moment of time where there has never been more money at play. So like all indie beauty brands are not created equally. You know, if you self-fund, you have a very different business than someone that's venture-backed at all points. And I think that there is this, there has been, because part of it is out of necessity, to kind of rewrite history and kind of paint this narrative that it's 68 and sunny every day because you need investors and retailers to believe that, right? But I'm always so grateful for founders that are like, yeah, it's hard because it really is. You know, when people are like, I'm going to mortgage my house, I'm like, don't do that. (laughs) I know. I can't even afford to go on vacation. Like there's no glory. There's also market factors that play around inflation and my rent and all this other stuff, right? But like, it's tough. But what I will say is that I don't care if I had raised $100 million. I'm sure you've heard of the arrival fallacy. I've mentioned this in other conversations because it is so true, which is that you never arrive. I don't care who you think you are. Even look at Elon Musk, who will be the first trillionaire in 2024, and he's still trying to fight for relevancy. Like every single person is trying to find their life's meaning and trying to feel like they can wake up and say, like, I'm okay. And I just don't think that happens. <laughs> I, think, I think everybody is not okay and everybody's okay all at once. And that's how life is. Yeah. Let's talk about fundraising for a little bit because it is, if you want to build a brand that has scale, it's very difficult to do it without getting outside funding. So to date, you've raised about $10 million over four rounds, which you said. And it's also made you one of the most VC-backed sexual wellness personal care companies. So congratulations on that. I'm sure it was no small feat. Your last round was oversubscribed at 5.8 million Series A. So it leads me to believe that perhaps the Series A may have been a little bit easier to raise because you had... Proof of concept, I'm sure you had some traction at that point. But what has your fundraising path look like? Because, I mean, at the end of the day, I know that your team is mostly females and you have some female investors, but most investors are guys. So I would say the first round, well, multiple rounds have been oversubscribed. But what's interesting about that is that's just, to me, evidence of the lemming effect. (laughs) Right. That's very true. (laughs) With an investor land, sorry to tell you that, you know, but it's true. So we have a lot of investors and we have been backed by many, many men, a lot of them old, a lot of them white. And I think that ultimately this category, I don't know that there's anyone that you would meet that could tell you that they think that this category isn't outdated. So when I say category, I mean, not only what you see in a drugstore, but also what you see, we can all agree that the sex shop is feels like a relic of 1984. So I think through and through, everybody understood that. The questions then became, how are you going to take on this category? How much money do you need? What's really going to create critical change? And like, is there going to be product market fit? I will say that the challenges of raising in this category also mean that anyone that's joined as an investor really believes in us. Sure, we have 
challenges all the time, but I don't have to continue to prove myself. Like they said, I signed up for this and I know it's going to be a hard journey. So fundraising has been hard from start to finish and we're probably not done, but. Do you have any advice for other founders? I think there's also, listen, the market has changed very, very quickly in the course of six months. So it's never been easy to fundraise. I think it's gotten much more difficult in the environment we're in now. But do you have any advice for founders, especially at the early stage? Because I think some people don't realize how hard it is because you, and listen, we've been complicit in that. We share deal flow. So we perpetuate people getting these, what looks like ungodly amounts of money in seed round raises. But the truth of the matter is it's hard. It's hard. So first of all, and I know I say that all the time, that's my favorite phrase, because there is really no, anyway, call it like the dollar shave, or the drunk elephant effect. These examples have created this, I would say fallacy that there's outcomes like this all the time. Those are the outliers. Those are not the norms. And ultimately, because we haven't really taken a look and were more critical in the past few years around what real outcomes look like, there has been a misalignment between VC growth and what a company can do, how much money do they need and really what is the outcome. And so interestingly enough, as you know, more than anyone, again, there are tons of great beauty outcomes, but they are not tech outcomes. And so when I have to give advice to people, my first piece of advice is like really examine what the outcomes have been so that you know the range and you can basically create optionality throughout the journey to say, I may be bought for 20 million and to get there would take X. I may be bought for X. And so really knowing who are the players, where could you possibly go and forget the billion dollar exit, put one foot in front of the other first and get to these milestones because there are much longer journeys than anyone wants to talk about to get to a billion dollars. And it's not the same time anymore. We are not living in 2012. So everything has gone up by three to four times around cogs and freight and the cost of doing business is extraordinarily expensive compared to a few years ago. So that's my advice. It also takes time to build a brand. This idea that it happens quickly. You know, there was a period, I guess, during the D2C boom where I was like, maybe I'm just out of touch and old, but I don't see how this happens. And fast forward, Glossier has been in existence for a decade and in my experience, with my historic perspective, as I like to call it, on the industry, it takes a solid seven to 10 years to truly build a brand, understand your business. And yeah, growth slows down. But I think that that is a reality that I think does not get talked about exactly how long it takes. Those horizon timelines have not been acceptable in the VC world. So you're kind of like, so the good news, I mean, the existing investors, especially the ones at the table for our Series A, they have come from PE and they've come from beauty. Their perspective is, one, you need to build a real business and they will get through the weeds. You know, I spent this morning talking to them, like they will get in the weeds with you to say, what is a real business? And two, they will say, okay, this is the real horizon because three to five years is unheard of. And even if that was the case, look at the companies outside of beauty that have been, you know, that have exited or spacked and look at what's really happening. Like often they're hitting a loss every single year. It's untenable. I don't really know where these companies are going to like end up, but. I just personally don't have the constitution for operating at a loss. Maybe it's because I've self-funded too often, but I would have an absolute ulcer. Trust me, it's hard. And I think <laughs> we've had some changeover in terms of who's driving conversation within our own investor group. But 
for the most part, everyone's accepted that it's a new era. This is like growth at all costs is impossible because are you going to keep funding it? No. It just defied logic. But we are in a new era. And I do think that part of what was driving it was you had the beauty category became a really sexy category because of the margins and the multiples. And I think there were a lot of people investing in, let's call it the past 10 years, that were unfamiliar in the category and created kind of this dynamic that you had this idea that brands could scale like a tech brand could or that a three to five year horizon was possible. But I think there has been a reality check. But unfortunately, the collateral damage are those brands that didn't raise enough money, couldn't raise more money because they were operating on this growth at all cost model and no longer exist. Yeah. And there are so many of those. And I think I've had founders come to me who've had businesses for a few years and now they want to raise. And I'm like, why? Like, sure, I get it if you just want out, but there are many ways out. You don't have to raise money. If you want someone to buy you, there are plenty of people who will buy smaller brands. Like, or do you just close it? Or I ask myself every single day, like, what are all of my options? And do I still want to be here? And so long as I could say yes, like, great, I'll show up. <laughs> like, there's a world in which I say I will work at Mod until I can't work anymore. And that could be 40 more years. Who knows? And I'm okay with that. That's probably not going to be the case. But it's like, think about it. The life of entrepreneurs has sort of also been glorified along with those billion dollar valuations and big rounds of funding. But there's been a lot of backlash to that as well. But I agree. I think this kind of sobering moment is good for the category and for founders because there's no longer this, well, I mean, I suppose perhaps it exists, but this unrealistic ideal. When things get tough, like reality sets in very quickly. It does. And I think when I look at these unicorn outcomes, just from my own personal perspective, I think I said this to someone the other day who was at you know, the CEO of a very large, shall not be named conglomerate. And essentially, I said, I don't want Maude to die. And like, even if someone came along and tried to buy it tomorrow, our work is not done, we will die, we are not big enough to matter. And then when you become big enough to matter, you still are at risk for becoming irrelevant. Like, that is why most of these big conglomerates still have the same old brands, because these brands have been around for decades, and they're just tried and true. So it's, Thinking a year ahead, 10 years ahead, 50 years ahead, 100 years ahead is really critical. And it will make your head spin. But Yeah, I mean, I also think that some of these unicorn exits are actually a brands that have been around for two decades, like Paula's Choice, which I actually think is very cool. But, you know, at some point it wasn't considered the sexiest brand, but they're a solid business. And one of the things that you actually have in common is that I don't think a lot of people realize, but the bulk of their business was D to C and international. And you're sort of embarking on international expansion. You're in 33 countries, UK, EU, and Canada and Australia with a D to C strategy. And, you know, given the current economics of customer acquisition, can you share a little bit about this strategy? Because I find it interesting because historically, international distribution has been done through a distributor relationship or a retailer relationship. But I think 
owning the opportunity from the standpoint of truly getting into the weeds and understanding the opportunity is a really pragmatic way of going about it. But I don't think it's always perceived as that. Well, it's interesting because without our partner who only exists because this D2C era came about, without our partner and passport, like we wouldn't have been able to do this. And our take was not, okay, there's 10 of you, like there's enough of you to go and divide your time and care about our international customer. No, it was more like, well, we can turn the switch on, see what happens, and then start charting course based on what's happening. So it's still very much, I would call it in beta because we haven't spent any money on acquiring international customers. We don't focus on our international customer. We just use it as a way to say, here's where we can go next. So for instance, we're launching in Selfridges in July. We knew that we had a UK market, we could support it, and then we can drive everything around the online experience to what the offline looks like without, otherwise it would be just walking in the dark. So we're using it as a way to think through future, but we're not, it's not a such a big risk that we're counting on it, if that makes any sense. It's like small tests. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I have one last question for you. So what is the future of the sexual wellness category look like? Or what are you trying to build? Like what does success look like? I think it's going to look like beauty. I think you're going to end up walking into any store, whether it's mass or prestige, and you're going to have a section. I think that's the future. And I also believe that there's this simultaneous growth in men's care and grooming And those will converge to create a very obvious space for sexual health. So if I could wave a wand, I wish that these sections weren't gendered because I would put sex right in the middle of them. But that's where I think it's all going. And it's led by beauty, which is a good thing. So all the questions that were asked of beauty for the past 10, 20, 30 years are the same questions that are going to be asked of this category. I 100% agree. I think this is one of those categories where gender really becomes kind of a sticky wicket, right? Because essentially, you'd have to be merchandised in two completely separate categories for a category that actually is gender agnostic, really. Exactly. And it's interesting that you brought up Gen Z earlier because I said this to you, I think, in a previous call, we're 43% over 40 as an audience wise. And but the ask of Gen Z to start to have conversations around gender, push the merchandising of the broader category of beauty and personal care forward. And it resonates with our audience at the same time. So I don't think that it's going to be the older millennial in me, or, you know, the Gen Xer, to ask that question and push it as much. But the fact that we are appealing to many adults means that we're getting like the benefit of everybody asking for what they need. Well, I like your future. So I will continue. (laughs) It really has been, you know, there are being a bit of a brand junkie, there are brands that launch and you kind of watch the path because you know at launch that there's something special. So it's been fun watching you kind of build and kind of chart this path and really excited that we've gotten to know each other as well. So we can have more conversations like this. And, you know, thank you for taking the time today. Yeah. You know, we've been saying that mod is like 
1960s Milan. So as you go on your journey, just send me pictures because this is like what we Oh, totally. Be. I'll be happy to. I'll be happy to. <laughs> I'm yeah, only there for three you. days, but I always have to go to Rosanna Orlandi. Just like those red R's on the gate make me happy. And 10 Corsa Como. And those are like not the newest, hottest things, but I don't know. I find them the most interesting. And there's a very cool apartment building across the street from Rosanna Orlandi that if you're into that, I will totally take a picture for you. Please do. It's been fun to have Maud be both relevant now and have so much to pull from from the past. And that's really where the name Maud came from was it's a nod to modern and modern is timeless, oddly enough. So thank you for everything. Of course. Thank you. Hi, I'm Eva. And for me, it's a matter of gumption. And when I say gumption, I mean exactly as it's defined, which is resourcefulness and being able to handle anything. For Eva, it's a matter of gumption. Her time spent in healthcare and experiences at startups like Everlane converged in the launch of Maud. She's building a sexual wellness brand grounded in the belief that sexual pleasure and health go hand in hand. Modern and inclusive in its approach to engendering better intimacy through beautifully designed products, Maud suggests to consumers of all genders and ages that sexual health is something to embrace and not feel shame about. It's a time to create a new standard and redefine our conversation around sex and our relationship with sexual wellness. And Eva is just the person to lead that charge. So in the end, it's a matter of gumption. I'm Kelly Kovac. See you next time. If you like what you heard, don't forget, rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. It's a Matter Of is a production of Beauty Matter. You can find more content and insights on beautymatter.com and follow us on social media.